beginning with the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. This is what the Word of God has to say. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now skip with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus. But in verse 54, Paul writes these words. When the perishable, speaking of our fleshly bodies, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I've mentioned regularly that this Advent season I'm preaching from Isaiah 6, 9, 6 and 7. So next week I'll be preaching from verse 7 and connecting the attributes and names given to the Messiah with New Testament passages that give further understanding and the meaning of those names and, and the attributes. Today we come to the last two names that are listed uh, in the Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 passage of everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. These, these two names point us to the eternal nature of the Messiah, that he is eternal. Eternal past, present, and future. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the work of, the, of redemption that he, ha, that he will come to accomplish, that he is going to be the Prince of Peace who makes us right with our Father God. I'm connecting this to 1 Corinthians 15 and specifically verses 54 and 57. Now, all of 1 Corinthians 15 is focused on the, the centrality of the resurrection to the gospel. And I, I'm hoping today that you've read 1 Corinthians 15 before, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. The, 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 the foundational baseline truth that 1 Corinthians 15 is teaching is if Jesus did not rise from the dead, physically, bodily, if he did not die on the cross, buried, dead in the grave, and three days later rise again from the dead, then all of the gospel promises are worthless. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we do not have the hope of the resurrection either. We preach the gospel today that if you believe on Jesus in faith, that your salvation provides for you eternal life, that even when these bodies die, you will live forever with God forever. That is founded and based on the promise of the resurrection, which Jesus is the first fruit and we are the, the, the following fruit. So if the resurrection did not happen, then we have no hope indeed. But we believe the resurrection indeed is true. And then that leads Paul to break out. The way I read the ending of 1 Corinthians 15 is he's been teaching on the resurrection. And he's been thinking about the, the implications of the resurrection. And he comes to 
um, uh, the, the, these last few uh, verses of the, the chapter and just breaks forth in worship. In the final verses of the chapter, Paul declares this wonderful truth in verse 51 and 52 where he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, we shall not all die. Jesus will come back, and when he comes back, some saints will be living. So not all will sleep, but all, whether dead before Christ returns or living when Christ returns, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and, and all... And, and, and we shall all be changed. And in response to this truth, Paul breaks out in worship and quotes a passage from Isaiah 25 and from Hosea 13 when he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The more acquainted you are today with suffering and brokenness, and the suffering and brokenness of this world, the more precious these words will be to you. I was reflecting this week as I was preparing to preach the times where this passage has meant most, has meant most to me. And the moments where I have read and quoted and meditated on this passage, all of them without fail were not happy moments. They were moments where death interrupted my life, where loved ones departed, where where heartache was heavy, and I returned to this promise knowing that the realities of the brokenness of this world have no victory and ultimately have no sting because of the promise of the resurrection and the hope of the gospel. Paul is responding to the redemptive work of Jesus that provides eternal salvation and eternal peace to those who believe in faith on Jesus. And that's what the prophet Isaiah was declaring when he said, And his name shall be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this morning, I want to use those two names for the two very basic, simple points of my sermon this morning, beginning with eternal salvation and then secondly, eternal peace. Now, I use that, that, that word eternal because I want you to understand everything that God does is, is everlasting. So if he starts something, he finishes something. And when he finishes something, it lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. So God, through the Messiah, through the work of the Messiah, provides for us eternal salvation and eternal peace. Let's begin with eternal salvation. I'm connecting that with the name Everlasting Father. The Bible declares to us that if you are saved by the blood of Jesus, it produces in you a life that is transformed forever. Isaiah uses the name eternal father pointing to the eternal nature of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 uh, says that the perishable things cannot inherit the perishable. He says in that verse, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit imperishable. And the point that Paul is making is that the re resurrection is not a, a continuation of the present, but a beginning of something new. If you'll listen with theological ears, when the world talks about heaven, they usually talk about heaven as a earth or a world that we're experiencing right now 
that's just a little bit better. So, and sometimes I think they do it with humor, but, 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 but we ought to be theologically correct even when we're joking. So people will say, well, he's gone to the great fishing hole in the sky. Or whatever it is that you love to do. You know, he's, he's, at, a, he's at a hunt that, that always has something. I mean, whatever it is, he's at the great golf course in the sky. This is this idea of whatever you like to do, heaven's just a better version of earth. And friends, listen to me. That may make good Hallmark movies, but it's not biblical. The testimony of the glory of heaven is not that we just get a little bit better earth. No, the testimony of heaven is that you, your physical body, and everything around you is transformed according to the glory and majesty and eternal nature of God. God's not fixing broken down things. He's transforming us to new. And so Paul says, listen, when you think about the resurrection, you got to understand you cannot experience the resurrection in these old broken down imperishable mortal bodies because perishable things cannot inherit imperishable things. Mortal things cannot inherit immoral things. Immortal things. The point is, is that the resurrection is not a continuation of the present, but a beginning of something new. And it is also a testimony that the things of this world are not enough to provide entrance into eternal life with God. The perishable cannot become on its own imperishable. The, the, the corrupted cannot become on its own undefiled. The, the mortal cannot become on its own immortal. This is both the recognition of man's weakness and it is a recognition of the glory of God. You can do nothing that makes you right before a holy God. What could you do? In your sin, you are broken and corrupted. What can you do to make yourself right before a holy God? However, in the flesh, Jesus, who knew no sin, made a way for you to be redeemed and transformed. The eternal God came to make you and I, that you and I might be saved and be brought into the eternal nature, the perishable made imperishable, the mortal become immortal, that we might dwell with the eternal Father for eternity. That only happens, brothers and sisters, through a life that is transformed through the gospel. The Messiah is the eternal Father who came in the flesh to provide a way for man who is in, who is in sin, corrupted flesh, to be transformed to a living eternity with God. The Messiah did not come to dwell with us so sinful men might know the, the, the transformation to eternal life. The, the Messiah did not come just to dwell with us that, we might, that he might know our suffering. The Messiah came to dwell with us that sinful men might know the transformation to eternal life that only comes through faith in Jesus. Friends, listen to me. The gospel is not about self-help. The gospel is about God transforming your life. The eternal Father does that. He transforms our life and he fulfills the law. Salvation and eternal life with God are not bestowed on you by ignoring or forgetting the law. Salvation and eternal life with God are only through the fulfillment of the law. Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal Father, satisfied the law's demands. We need to think of God from a biblical perspective, not a human perspective. When I was growing up, uh, I, I, will, I would say this if all of my family was here present today. I was my granddad's favorite. Amen? 
I don't care what my cousins and, and siblings tell you, I was my granddad's favorite. And here's how our relationship worked. I could mess up. I could break something. And when I told my granddad about it, he would say, oh, it's all right. Don't you worry about it. And I love that. That's not how my dad treated me, right? If I broke things and messed up things at my home, there was going to be discipline. There was going to be consequence. But my relationship with my granddad was different. It was, oh, you didn't mean it, did you? Well, I did mean it, but you didn't mean it, or it's okay. He just, there was that grandfather, grandson, it was a sweet relationship because I was indeed his favorite. And I, I enjoyed that, that position. But friends, that's not the relationship we have with God. God doesn't look at your sin and say, don't you worry about it. God doesn't look upon your wickedness and say, well, let's just pretend like it's not there. No, the testimony of Scripture is that God fulfilled the law. Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal Father, satisfied the law's demands. This is what Paul is so excited about when he declares death is swallowed up in victory. Now, this portion of the chapter is it's almost as if the thought of the, the, the coming day of Christ's return overwhelms Paul and he breaks out in, in worship and begins quoting Old Testament. I think that's exactly what probably happened as he's writing this passage. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come about the same. It's almost like he's thinking about that day when these old mortal bodies will, will, will put, be put off and the immortal will be given, the imperishable will be given. And he says, oh, that's when we'll declare what's already been written. Oh, death, where is your, your, your death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's imagining the day that the fullness of the promise of the gospel will be known. But listen to me carefully. The following two verses are why he is so overjoyed. In verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3. The curse of death has ruled over every man, woman, and child. The curse of death has ruled over all of creation. The Bible tells us that the creation groans under the weight of this curse. Sometimes we will, we will, we will talk about the innocence of children, but the Bible says all of us were born into sin. And listen, I, I've, I've had four children. I can tell you they're not innocent. Amen? <laughs> Nobody teaches children to lie, but somehow they know how to do it, right? Nobody teaches kids how to swipe things that are not supposed to be theirs, but somehow they all know how to do that. Why? Because we were born in the flesh in sin. Hebrews tells us that for sin to be forgiven... The requirement is the shedding of blood. Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's talking about death there. From Genesis 3, declare that from, from the sweat of your brow you shall, you shall you'll feed yourself, and from dust you came, and from dust you shall return, God said. In other words, you shall die, Adam. 
And every man that ever lived, every woman that ever lived after Adam and Eve have indeed died. Hebrews tells us that the consequence of sin is death. Testified to by the shedding of blood of the, the rams and the lambs of the Old Testament, purifying temporarily the sins of the people. Paul references this in verses 20 and 21 of this same chapter. He says, For as by a man came death, he's talking about Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Speaking of Jesus, for as, at, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Friends, because Jesus, the eternal Father who knew no sin, died for your sin, his blood was shed. You can have forgiveness. Jesus, the eternal Father, satisfied the demands of the law. By satisfying the demands of the law, Jesus has made a way for you to be eternally set free from, the sin, from sin and death. All things of this world are temporary, but Jesus has made an eternal way for you to be made right before a holy God. The law is satisfied in Jesus. Sometimes you can find a little help this side of heaven. I'm thankful for medicine and, and, uh, and, and, and medical treatment. And friends, sometimes you can find a, a procedure or a medication that will give you a temporary relief from something that's bothering you today. Thankful for that. I'm thankful for governments that can provide temporary peace from war and, and difficulty. The reality is that money, if you have a lot of it, can provide a temporary pleasure for you to enjoy this side of heaven. But let's be very, very clear. There is nothing in this corrupted and perishable world that can offer you eternal hope and salvation. Nothing. Nothing. Only Jesus, the eternal Father, who was and is and is to come can and has made a way for you to have eternal salvation. That's why the Word of God declares, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, die, but have eternal life. Jesus is the eternal Father who provides for us eternal salvation. And, Isaiah says, he is the Prince of Peace. And the Prince of Peace provides for us eternal, everlasting peace. Now, Paul says some things here that I think are important. And the first thing he says is that because sin has been dealt with by Jesus, death has been not pushed back, not mitigated, not lessened. He says death has been defeated. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul is declaring the wonderful hope that the curse of death has been overcome. The curse of death that began with Genesis 3 was ended, overcome, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because the demands of the law have been satisfied in the death of Jesus, the curse of sin has been removed from those who believe in faith. You may not know who said it, but you probably have heard it said. It was Benjamin Franklin, by the way, in a letter to a friend said, the only things that, can, that can't be avoided in this life are death and taxes. So you've heard it. You can avoid taxes. You might have to go to jail, but you can avoid taxes. 
but he was right. You cannot avoid death. These words resonate. The reason I think they have entered into our common lexicon of just sayings is that every, because with every generation, death is a common denominator for every man, woman, and child. I mean, I don't have to ask. I know everyone here today has had the sting of death. Everyone here today has, has felt the weight of the oppressiveness of death. However, the hope of Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, we celebrate Jesus resurrected not as a fairy tale, not as a religious metaphor or an, a, 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 as, a, as an allegory. We celebrate Jesus resurrected as the event that marked the end of death. We celebrate Jesus resurrected as the first resurrection that will be followed by the resurrection of every other believer that has put their faith in Jesus. Jesus lives today, friends, and death has been defeated. Now, I don't know if that's good news to you, but that's good news to me. That the one thing that cannot be avoided, the one thing that has been the curse of every man, woman, and child since Genesis 3 was ended, was defeated, had victory over at the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, friends, the Prince of Peace has brought death to death, and he brings victory in himself. There is, friends, victory in Jesus. The word that is translated victory uh, in this passage, you know whether or not you know it or not, is nikos, or in another form, Nike. The sports clothing brand uses this Greek word because it means to win, a victory over, to be victorious over, to be a victor, to conquer, to have victory. Nike. <laughs> And Paul says we, that we have victory over death. We have, death has been conquered. We have had, been victorious over it. In verses 55 and 56, there is a recognition that presently it seems, now that's important, it seems as though sin and death have the power and victory. But these verses also celebrate that through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Sin and death have been and are defeated. The hope of the gospel and the work of the Messiah is victory over death. Isn't that good news? You know what makes that news even sweeter? Is when you're feeling the sting of death. You know what makes that news even more precious? When you're feeling the weight and the oppression of death. Because sometimes this side of heaven, it feels like death is winning. It feels like the, the curse of sin has the upper hand when your body is diminishing and when death visits your, your, your family. And we return to a verse like this and we're reminded because of the hope of the gospel, death is defeated. We have 
hope even in this broken world. The hope of the gospel and the work of the Messiah is victory over death. The hope of the gospel and the work of the Messiah is to set sinners free from the condemnation of sin and to make them right and at peace with God. Isaiah prophesied the hope of victory, the victorious prince of peace, the one who would make us right with God for eternity. The angels rejoiced in the coming of the prince of peace on the night Jesus was born. And Paul and the New Testament apostles declared the good news that Jesus had finished the work of atonement on the cross. And from that moment on, death has no sting and it has no victory. We celebrate Christmas not only for the arrival of Jesus. That is an important word to remember. We celebrate Christmas not only for the arrival of Jesus, but for the purpose of his coming and the work that he accomplished. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the realities of being a pastor is that I attend a lot of funerals, sometimes uh, leading the service, preaching the service, sometimes just attending. But, but my calendar from all of my ministry has always had uh, probably more funerals on it than, than the average person. I have, over the course of my ministry, participated in services that were attended by less than 10 people. And I've participated in services that were so crowded that it was standing room only, people out in the hallways and overflow uh, places. I have participated in services that had notable speakers and impressive lineup or preachers and those who were bringing eulogies and, and, and others that were simple affairs that few would remember. I, I have participated in services that included grand and glorious gifts of music and I've participated in some that had nothing more than a CD player that somebody, somebody played a song on. And for all that variety of grand and simple, the most memorable distinction of the many funerals I have attended and participated in, listen to me carefully, is the presence or the absence of the gospel. Now, you might think that would be standard, that the gospel would be preached at funerals, but I'm sad to tell you today that's not necessarily the expectation. Now, what is standard is eulogizing. I've been to funerals where the person who was, we were, we were remembering that day was so well spoken about, I thought, we've gone too far. I knew them. <laughs> and they weren't that sweet. They weren't that nice. I, I, listen, I've had moments where had the service and the kind and gracious things were said. And then following the service, dear friends and family members of the departed have come up and said, that wasn't right because that wasn't true. <laughs> they, were, they were correct. The sad reality is usually we speak well of the person who has departed, but sometimes no attention at all is given to the gospel. But I want to tell you something, friends. I don't care how good you live. That gives no hope to you for eternity. 
I don't care how generous you have been in life, that gives you no hope in eternity. I don't care how many people will attend your funeral, that gives you no hope for eternity. I don't care how grand or beautiful the music or how impressive the speakers are at your, at your funeral, that gives you no hope for eternity. We can speak for hours and hours of how wonderful you were, and that gives you absolutely no hope for eternity. But do you know what does? The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's no hope in good works. There's no hope in fond memories. There's no hope in anything from the works of man. There is only hope in the empty tomb of the eternal Father and the Prince of Peace. There is only hope in Jesus, the Messiah, who has defeated death and has provided victory to you today. There is only hope in Jesus, who has satisfied the law's demand and has removed forever and ever the curse of sin. There is only hope in the promise because Jesus has risen from the dead. He has caused the dead in Christ to rise and will be glorified in their bodies and will live forever and ever and ever and ever in his house and in his presence for glory's sake. There is only hope in the promise that because Jesus has risen from the dead, he will cause those who remain at his second coming to be transformed and given glorified bodies. That's why, writing about the resurrection, Paul declares, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The, st the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.